I was like, this must wake him up. <laughs> this will wake him up. And he didn't wake up. I had created the American dream around me. I was making a ton of money. I lived right on the beach. I was engaged to this incredibly successful, beautiful man, but it wasn't my life. What is the difference between spirituality and religion? Do you believe that because Mother Teresa wasn't Baptist that she's going to hell? And my grandmother said, yes. And I was like, oh, I don't think we believe the same thing. How did you open your voice? I was a slave. And I used my voice to sing songs of liberation to remind all the slaves that nobody can truly own us. We're in the Dalai Lama's home, we're in this big room, and just as he's giving the part of his speech, Hey guys, welcome to another episode. My guest today is Marley. There's so many things to say about Marley, but one thing that caught my attention that she has her own church. And I never met people who have her own churches. So really, really excited. But she's also an artist. She is fascinated by water, which we're going to talk about today as well. Marley, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I never met anybody who owns a church. I'm going to ask you uh, some stupid questions, but I'm sure many of people in the audience uh, for watching and listening, they also never seen a person who has their own church. What does that mean? Well, so I, first I'd like to say is I'm stewarding a church, right? And typically when we think of a church, we think of a set collection of beliefs that people come around those set collection of beliefs. And so the church that I formed in Stewart is called Gaia Temple. And it's for artists, activists, environmentalists, light workers, and entrepreneurs and impact investors who are really interested in providing a voice and a platform for Gaia, for the planet itself as an equal sentient being. And we use art as a catalyst to help other people understand that Nature has rights just like humans, and ultimately what we're moving towards is community development and land conservation and restoration. And for me, what that looks like is it's completely intuitively led. When uh, COVID happened, I kept getting all of these visions of churches, and I was living on the big island of Hawaii, kept seeing all of these churches, and I was finally like, okay, I'm going to go to Spain and, and start studying um Gaudi's architecture and, and go to La Sagrada Familia and visit these churches that I keep getting visions of. And as I put in my notice to leave the place where I was living at the time, which was called the Garden of Eden, a community right on the ocean, um, someone came to me. They said, Marley, there's this historical chapel in Kao, and we think this church is meant for you. And so in the sake of COVID, when we were being told to quarantine and stay by, um, stay by ourselves, I took on a year lease for this beautiful historical church in Hawaii and created an artist incubation center. And um, that church is exquisite. It, it was beautiful. It had a big stage. It had white awnings. And it was the first church in Hawaii where the Filipino and the Japanese came together as two races to worship under one house of God. And Whenever I took on the stewardship of this historical church, I was really bringing people together from deep Pahoa, which is like the wild ones, the, the wild, wild ones, the wild hippies, with, you know, my friends from Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas and Los Angeles, who were like these like future frontier kind of people. And we all 
believed in the same thing, which is the singularity of existence and the heart and art really being the pathway to spark a larger remembrance of our soul. Beautiful. There's a lot to unpack here, yeah. <laughs> for the, especially for the person who doesn't know much about churches. How does it differ like a church from a nonprofit organization or from just a community of people? Absolutely. How does it differ from a nonprofit? It's interesting that we, um, so many people are subscribed to a society and cultural conditioning in which we have created these entities, these business entities that serve as containers and have all of these um, laws that surround them. A nonprofit is an organization that has a cause and uh, an initiative and they are doing something and they're not creating wealth, right? Like that's, that, that is, that's not about the accrual of wealth. Um, Versus like an LLC is a legal entity where that is a business and somebody is making money. And then you have a B Corp and a B Corp is sort of in between where you have a legal entity and it's a business and you're making money, but you're maybe not going to make billions of dollars underneath a B Corp. Um, a 508C1A has all of the benefits of a nonprofit and of a church. Um, the traditional church is, well, I think, a five, 501 C3A, I believe it's a traditional church, um, but there's other there's other aspects to it. And I'm not going to get into the legalities because I'm, sure. I'm not a lawyer, but if people are interested in opening a church and finding out about the sovereignty movement, really for me, the reason that I was drawn to it is because it's a large part of the sovereignty movement where I can operate um, as a free person. And so whenever COVID was happening and people needed, um, they didn't want to get the vaccine but their jobs were being threatened or their kids being able to go to school was being threatened. I was able to write letters for those people that were a part of the church and say, hey, it's actually against my moral belief to get a vaccination. And with that letter, that letter can stand in court. And so if somebody, um, you know, more recently we did a baptism and somebody needed a baptism for their child. So we did a baptism and then I got to give them a legal document that showed that their child was baptized through the church and they didn't have to go through um, a Baptist or a Catholic organization. They could do something that felt more true to their own belief system, which was just reverence and connection to nature. Well, a lot of your church ideas around earth as being a center of it. Mm -hmm. How does earth play? What role does it play in your life that it's so important to you that your church <laughs> is named Gaia? Oh, what a great question. I mean, well, gosh, I wish that everybody could see what it is that you and I are looking at right now, which is um, in front of us is this open, expansive canopy of jungle, and we can hear the birds if we listen beyond our voices. We can hear the water, the river rushing down below. For me, nature is so much. Uh, when I was a little girl, I grew up in the United States in Rolla, Missouri, a little podunk town, and um, all summer, I would spend my time out in nature, just barefoot, exploring the creeks, climbing the trees, being with nature. And nature is a place where you can be connected to your mammal sentience, really connected to your body. You can let your imagination be wild. You can really be fully in the creative capacity of your being when you're in reflection with nature. Um, and 
growing up and then moving to cities, living in Los Angeles, living in San Francisco, um, moving to these cities, you feel what it's like to become domesticated. Our generation is truly the last backyard generation. And what that means is we're the last generation to know what it's like to have spent time free in nature in the West. And today kids have iPads, they have computers, they have cell phones. There are so many things vying for our attention all the time that we've forgotten what it is to have spaciousness of thought. And it's in spaciousness of thought that then we are connected to our creative capacities. And that is our birthright. Our, our, our entire reason for this human existence is to be in curiosity and play and experimentation. But if we think that we know exactly what's going on all the time, and this is all that exists, is the confinements of our mind that is shaped by billboards, by news, by television, by books, by our education system, then we'll never be able to explore into the infinite edges of our human potentiality. And in nature, nature is a safe space to be learning constantly. Nature shows us how to be in symbiosis, harmony, freedom, and abundance. It helps us come out of the illusion of scarcity. It shows us how to be in reverence of something outside of ourself. And it's extremely healing for the nervous system. So people like myself, um, when I was in Los Angeles, I actually started a hiking company where I would take people into the trails. And I would do that on the back of being deep in the fashion industry. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've gone all the way into the belly of the beast and, and confined myself with golden handcuffs and then found my freedom again. And part of the rewilding and reconnecting to my own identity came through that connection to nature. Let's talk about that. I was preparing. I know that you worked with like big fashion brands. Mm -hmm. Long story short, I always wanted to be an artist. But as a double Taurus, I am extremely practical. And so when I started going to school, my mom uh, really encouraged me to study fashion. She could see it was something that I loved, that I had a passion for. And really, I just wanted to be a wild artist, but I couldn't think of a way to create a life as an artist. So instead, I moved to San Francisco and I went to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And I selected the major visual communications because I'll never forget sitting in the office of the counselor and her taking me through every single major. And when she got to visual communications, I was like, it sounds like that's the one where I could have the most creative freedom. And she's like, yeah. So I was like, okay, let's do that. And it just was sort of what happens to so many of us. We accidentally get caught in a rat race. And this is so prevalent in corporations because there's always that, that golden carrot that's hanging above you. Get that next pay increase, get the new title increase, get the notoriety of the, the large accomplishments, get to be the person who travels around, get to be the person that everybody wants to role model their career after. And before I knew it, um, when I went into the fashion industry originally with brands like Urban Outfitters back in 2008, it was for passion and inspiration with lots of fashion forecasting and painting and building and, and uh, treating store interfaces like art galleries. It was a very unique time in fashion with Urban Outfitters. But when I moved to Los Angeles um, from Vermont and I began working in LA, I became crippled by how shallow the fashion industry was. And the moment that I realized I was beginning to judge people by the way that they were dressed, 
I knew something was wrong because that had never been my mindset before. And all of a sudden I would look at somebody and because I was so like the devil, the devil wears Prada, that movie, I was so connected to the lineage of fashion and the history of fashion and where the trends were, what was cool and what wasn't. I would look at a person and immediately size them up based off of everything exterior. And it was during that time that I found meditation. And when I found meditation, transcendental meditation, um, the, the very first time I sat down to meditate, I woke up. Why the first time? The very first time. And I didn't, even, I didn't even know what meditation was. I didn't know what spirituality was. I had been raised in Christian Baptist church, you know, very different. We had the Bible. We had the Bible, <laughs> and, but we didn't have this same idea of God. And so really my relationship with nature and with spirit really started to come together in that time when I first became connected to the essence of energy and frequency. And it was like, this huge light bulb just flipped on and all of a sudden my whole body was buzzing and glowing and everything was different. And if it wasn't for finding Michael Beckwith the same week that I woke up through meditation, I have no idea what would have happened. Yeah. Uh, and I can just imagine what it's like when people wake up and they have absolutely no guidance and they think they're crazy because for two years I continued to live in the box. I continue to live in the cage that I had created myself of the American dream and continue to walk the steps of a person who wasn't myself. And I had woken up to realize that I was so much more than what I thought I was, but I was still trying to live the small conditioned life. Meanwhile, learning from Michael Beckwith, learning from different psychology, podcasts like Sounds True, and taking in all this information, but I didn't have any people in my life that reflected what I knew to be true. And so for like two years, I just thought I was crazy. And it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, the goal of this show is to wake up souls. So <laughs> for me, I have to ask, mm -hmm. when you woke up, for people who are not woken up or don't know what that means, mm, yeah. can you describe what is waking up manifested for you? Oh, gosh. Well, what is waking up manifested for me and how do you describe it? Um, the way that you can describe waking up and the way it happened for me was think of a moment's inspiration where it is, you were just, you cannot be satiated. You are so inspired and all you can do is think about that thing. All you can do is want to move towards that thing. And it makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense whatsoever. Follow that because that's your golden thread. And there are so many ways to come into awakening. For me, it's through meditation. For other people, it's through fitness. For some people, it's through food. But follow that thing that you cannot put down and take it to its very edge and ask the questions of the universe. We live in such a benevolent, benevolent place where if you ask for help, help will always arrive. If you don't know what's going on, just ask the questions and let the universe respond in turn. And for me, it was incredibly painful because at the time I was engaged to an amazing man, like such an amazing man. And, and it, and it had, I had created the American dream around me. I had a very successful career. I was making a ton of money. I lived right on the beach. I was engaged to this 
incredibly successful and beautiful man inside and out, but it wasn't my life. And one of the hardest things was my partner was not awake. He wasn't awake. And I tried everything I could. I took him to go listen to Michael Beckwith. I, I taught him how to meditate. We changed his diet. We, I even had him take an ayahuasca ceremony. I was like, this must wake him up. <laughs> this will wake him up. And he didn't wake up. And it wasn't his path. And it got to the point where spirit became really clear with me and was like, you must leave this person. If you do not leave this person, they will die. They will die because that is not in your path. It is not in your soul's destiny to continue being in, in life, creation with this person. You have other things to do. And at that time in my life, I could have never imagined, never imagined where my life would take me. I never would have thought of opening a church. Um, at this point, you know, since waking up, I've had my sexual awakening which is a direct experience with God through sacred sexuality. I've traveled all around the world, um, having incredible ceremonies in Egypt, in India, um, in Hawaii, here in Bali, in Mexico. I've, I've, I've learned the culture of the world, and I've really got to understand hands in the dirt, what it means to live a fulfilling and nourishing life that is self-sustaining from the inside, knowing how to grow my own food if I need to, knowing how to capture rainwater and live, live in communities where we use solar energy and to really practice my values all the way to the edge to then come back into living in a city because that's what balance is. And for me, one of the greatest experiences through the awakening process was finding my voice. And that was just as significant as waking up. When, when my voice woke up, my entire identity, my entire life trajectory changed. Yeah. We're going to talk about the voice in a second. <laughs> There's another thing that caught my attention and would be good for, to clarify. You said that you were Catholic, you were studying the Bible, and then you said that you realized what is spirituality once you woke up. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between spirituality and religion? It's such a good question. Thanks for asking. I love, I love talking about this stuff a lot. So religion and spirituality, they can live together. Religion is a collection of beliefs or sacred texts or dogmatic ways of being that create a structure. And that structure is a sense of safety that lets us operate in the world with agreed upon parameters of who we are, who we are with one another, and how we can co-create and operate. Sometimes those structures become very confined and limiting and take away a person's sovereignty and freedom. But sometimes a person needs that structure to feel safe with their freedoms, right? Spirituality is what I would say. Spirituality is having more of a direct, immediate experience with what we could say is God. Okay. What we could say is creation. Spirituality is everything from drinking coffee with a high amount of presence to praying at the end of the day, to making love, to watering your plants, 
spirituality is acknowledging and being able to be in relationship with the life force essence that courses through every single thing, including you and me. And I'll always say that my grandmother was my greatest spiritual teacher. Um, I was raised Baptist Christian from my grandmother, and she would have us memorize all the Bible books. And bless her heart, she was my introduction to a sense of God. And I'll never forget when I was a teenager, Mother Teresa died. And I went to my grandmother, and I was really starting to test out some of my beliefs and her being my primary teacher, her beliefs. And I said, Mother Teresa wasn't Baptist. She was Catholic Christian. Do you believe that because Mother Teresa wasn't Baptist, but she was Catholic, that she's going to hell? And my grandmother said, Mother Teresa was an amazing woman. But yes, she's going to hell. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I don't think we believe the same thing. And then I asked her, I was like, what about homosexuals, gay people? Do you believe that gay people go to hell? And she said, yes. And it was shocking. And um, my grandmother, as I continued to come into my own and part of part of my voice journey was going to India. When I went to India, deeply studied Buddhism. Um, Buddhism completely changed my life. And there's a lot into that story. But when I came back to visit my grandmother, she couldn't even look me in the eye. It was like I was the literal representation of the devil to her, of somebody that had forsaken God, forsaken God because I had found my own relationship with God. And it was one of the most challenging things. And it was also a reclamation of you are still my greatest spiritual teacher because even then I choose my truth. I choose my faith and I still choose to love you even in spite of all of your fear. And her biggest fear was me going to hell, right? So even then, that judgment, that casting out, that shaming is still coming from the deepest part of her heart as love. And when um, I was really high on COVID once and calling my grandmother, <laughs> and I was just sort of a little bit delirious in COVID. And it was the first time my grandmother and I were able to have a spiritual conversation because it's very touchy. I have to have a lot of respect for her. Because this is her identity, right? And and religion is somebody's identity, and you must respect someone's identity. Um, and what I saw in that lucid place was, as she talked about Jesus, and I talked about Buddha, we talk about Krishna, we talk about Vishnu, we talk about Mary Magdalene, Mother Mary. It was um, this beautiful, big circle, and there were all of these doors all of these doors going into the great central sun, the great one light. And it was just showing me, you can take any one of these doorways and they all take you to the same place. And we can hear that a million times, but to really see, to really see firsthand, like through my body, a felt sensation of the the millions of doors that take us to source and each and every flavor of the deities, of the humans, of the gods, of the stories and the mythologies that have helped people understand the incomprehensible. It was just so beautiful. And that was the last time that I felt like I needed to talk to my grandma about face. Wow. The story. <laughs> what fascinates me about this story and many others is how conditioning is everything. <laughs> I think the child asks the right question. 
uh, about Mother Teresa, and then people respond right away. So they, they're so conditioned to that, that they respond without challenging anything. Mm-hmm. So what do you think as society or as human race, we are not used to challenge. Mm. We are rather just agree and say, I will just say what everyone else says and I don't want to think about it because for me, that's like a wall. I don't want to challenge because then I start to thinking and who knows what's going to happen then. Why do you think we do that? That's such a big question. (laughs) I mean, gosh, how many blind spots are there? There's so many. But if we really bring it to what I, what I personally feel is the most important is kindness. It's so simple. Kindness. People look away. They look away so easily because it's hard to see that in our limited mindsets that we could be inhumane to one another. And that's as simple as making eye contact with strangers and slowing down, just slowing down. Kindness is one of the greatest um, economics that we have. And we have been conditioned to believe that power, money, sex, and fame are the economics that drive our world. And they have been. But people are waking up and they've been waking up. And the tipping point is so fast. It's so fast. And it will continue to accelerate. And as we do that, we're coming into heightened senses. We're coming into extraordinary abilities. And from that place, our intuition gets stronger and our truth gets stronger. So therefore, the, the economic values are shifting into transparency, integrity, trust, and community. And, and when people see our economic system that Babylon, that our past has been built on, is, it's already crumbled. It's already obsolete. We have nothing but the wealth of relationships. And it's through the wealth of relationships that absolutely everything is made possible. And that first relationship starts with yourself. And, and this, the, the concept of self-love has been so materialized. It has been so separated from the truth of self-acceptance that I really think that if we can pay attention to the words that are in our mind and we can be kind to ourselves, and we can learn to slow down and be present and kind with one another, that is like the great undoing of any and all spells that we might have been conditioned by. And you don't have to wake up and become a guru. You don't have to become a saint. You don't have to become some superhero. You don't have to wake up to be kind. So would it be fair to say that the fact that your grandmother said that Mother Teresa is going to hell 
is because there was maybe not enough awareness there and presence. Because if she would be fully present with the kindness and uh, with love, it's hard to say that somebody can go to hell, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's a really good, that's a great question. And what we're working with here is um, generational mindset differences. And I would say um, a lack of education and a lack of safety. So what would have somebody say that person's going to hell? Well, there's a couple things. There's an inner critic, right? They have an inner judge that believes in the condemnation of right and wrong. And that's something that's taught yeah. through dogmatic religion and, gosh, our uh, primary education system. Like, there's so many, there's so many systems. But what happened in that moment was one of us was going to wake up. And as a child, that was me. In that moment, had my grandmother chosen to come all the way into present moment. And what that means is, that means asking my grandmother to come out of being raised as a missionary, coming out of, coming out of being raised by um, a community that built a church for my great-grandfather and turned him into a pastor. That meant coming out of any stories of scarcity and lack, meaning that everything is completely safe and everybody is okay. It would mean that my grandma would need to come out of her belief in the Bible. She would have to come out of her relationship with God and therefore completely reshape her entire identity just to be able to say, you know what, honey, Mother Teresa's not going to hell. It would have taken a complete dissolving of egoic identity that had been shaped from her entire life for her to be able to even get to the place to consider that. Yeah. And you and I are so radically blessed to have that be almost a first nature. And that's because we have grown up with the internet, <laughs> right? Like we have endless information at the tips of our fingers. We have AI now, artificial intelligence. We are ravenous for information. So much so that it's made us sicken in the head. But we are constantly willing to be malleable and change who we are to adapt and to evolve, which is why we're having this conversation, because we have been able to adapt and evolve. And so I just have to see to the truth of where does somebody's heart really lie when they say something like Mother Teresa could go to hell? Her heart really, really lies in the place of my sweet granddaughter needs to go to heaven. I can get her to go to heaven by having her believe in the Bible. And that's the best that my grandmother knew how to do. And when we're always meeting each other and you're doing the best that you know how, that's how we can continue to uphold a narrative of benevolence and have compassion for the blind spots of humanity. Fair enough. Being devil's advocate on another point, you said that we are blessed because we have internet and AI, which I do agree. But if that's true, why there are so many people, majority mm. at this point, living lives completely unaware of their surroundings. They're like moving as zombies through life and often don't wake up at all. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Such a good question. 
There is so many answers. There's not one answer to this. But the very first thing that dropped in was let's talk about our food. Let's talk about our food. Let's talk about what processed synthetic artificial foods do to the human body. If you have a Lamborghini and you pour grape Kool-Aid in the Lamborghini, is a Lamborghini going to drive? No. Okay, cool. Great. Well, our body is our human spaceship. This body is run by multiple things. One of the things that this body is run by is our essence, our spirit, our energy, our mana. Eastern medicine talks about energy. That's why people do acupuncture. That's why people do tapping. We're stimulating all of our energy meridians. We meditate to clear the energy from our mind. We sing to clear the energy around our toroidal field. We are energetic beings. That's just one aspect of this spaceship, our human spaceship. The other part of it is what we put into it. What is our fuel? And we have been, if we look at templates of confine, control, food is a very easy way to do that. Um, for me, I never thought about food. Food was a part of my awakening process that was totally unexpected. I, I don't watch those documentaries about the meat farms. I, I don't watch any of those documentaries. But one night um, when I was resisting my changing life and I was still working in corporate fashion, at the time I was going through high levels of anxiety and stress. And so I had a medical marijuana card. I lived in California. And one night I was, I was high. And I was across from my wonderful fiance and he said something that triggered something. And before you know it, I'm thinking about food and and I'm thinking about I'm getting all this information because I'm I'm working with the plant medicine of cannabis. And it's showing me how when I'm eating salad, which was my primary food at the time, uh, I'm getting all this energy from the earth when we're eating when we're eating whole foods. Whole foods are greens, fruits, vegetables, um, grains, things that have not been genetically modified, GMO-free, chemical additive-free. When you're eating those whole foods that come from the earth, you are receiving the energy of the earth. And that energy goes into your body, right? And so we're, we're, we're powering our body with energy. Then it showed me, it was like a 180. Then it showed me all of a sudden, all of these meat farms. And before I knew it, I was witnessing and feeling in my body the holocaust of animals. Literally the holocaust of animals. That's what we have done. And today I eat meat. But I took years after having this experience to radically purify my body from um, gluten. So no breads, no artificial sugars, um, no processed foods, no meat, no fish, no dairy. And when I went through this great purification that was hardly of choice, my body literally refused. It could not eat those things. Um, part of that purification was completely clearing the entire mind, clearing my human vessel, clearing my energy field. And that is one of the fastest paths to liberation, into freedom, into having clarity. Your food matters. If your food is coming wrapped in plastic, it has preservatives. It, and, and this idea of food scarcity is one of the greatest entrapments of our time. You can grow your food. 
We are so blessed to live in Bali. Same thing in Hawaii. This is where I really lived. It was in Hawaii. Here in Bali and in Hawaii, but especially in Bali, if you starve, it's because you're lazy. There is food growing all over these jungles. There's food growing all over these jungles. Um, the, the Amazon, I, I was recently told by somebody that the Amazon was found to have actually been a planted food forest. Food forests are seeds of food that are just planted. Food can grow. And, and if we're living in cold climates, we can build the right structures to grow food. But what happens is we get stuck working these jobs that underpay us, overwork us, and drain our drain all of our energy resources. We're giving our energy, our time, and our presence, which is the most valuable thing that we have, to these corporations that do not care about our humanity, right? And so then we get stuck because then we need to be able to pay for rent and for food. And we've completely disempowered ourselves. When you start growing your food, when you start eating whole foods, you start thinking clear. You start having more access to energy, more access to your power. And it's from that place that you can really begin to take in more empowered action. And so uh, this is a very drawn out answer to like, what is what is one thing that we can do right now to come out of confusion and samsara? Eat whole, healthy, organic foods. Stop dairy, stop gluten, stop meat just for a little bit yeah. to cleanse your system. I would ask a question that somebody listening us or watching us might ask. Marley, you're lucky because you escaped the system, but I have mortgage, <laughs> I have two kids, <laughs> and I'm in a system, and I don't have time to cook my own food, grow my own food, mm -hmm. I'm completely lost. Mm -hmm. What should I do? Okay, cool. Yeah, I know what it's like to be in that system. I know what it's like to be in that system. And I have broken free from that system. And I know so many other people who have done the same. So the first thing is stop making excuses and start finding solutions. Even if the solution is something super minimal, like I am not going to eat bread. Great. That, that's a baby step. That's a baby step. <laughs> like take your baby step, whatever your baby step is. If you are stuck in middle America and you have a mortgage and you have credit card debt and you have two to five children and you are in a lackluster loving relationship and you're there, that's hard. And that is the majority, like the, 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 that is a huge majority of people. And so the first thing is you've got to go into yourself and find your own inner resources of faith. And faith does not mean praying to some God outside of yourself. Faith is, I believe that I can do something better. I believe that I can find an answer. I believe that there's something out there for me more than this. And it's that first part, just creating and cultivating a faith and then starting to ask the universe, what's going right in my life right now? And, and when you can come out of the victim mindset is the most insidious thing that has us trapped. When you can start to recognize that you are no longer making excuses, but you're creating opportunities, what's going right in my life right now? What can I learn through the situation? What opportunities are around me that I may not have been present to? 
And you just ask those questions to the universe and let the universe answer you and start to guide you baby step by baby step and know that it will be terrifying. Courage is one of the biggest things that I teach. Courage is so huge. Courage is trusting in the unseen and the unknown and trusting in yourself and bringing yourself back to life. And it is scary. It is absolutely terrifying. And, and I have come into so much fear in my life. Like there's so much fear that I've had to move through. It's insane. It's literally insane how much fear I've had to move through. And even now, simple things that I know in two years time will be so silly. I still have to resource courage. But trust yourself and, 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 and know that you're not alone. That's the biggest thing. You're not alone. Beautiful. So for a person who woke up and for the person who stewarding a church, <laughs> what is God? What is God? <laughs> what is not God? Well, I don't even know. What is God to you? <laughs> what is God to you? To me? Yes. Good question. I know. It's a good question. <laughs> to me, God is just everything, energy of everything. But all gods, everything is God. I'll put it this way: just overarching energy, energetic field surrounding everything. Yeah, that's it for me. What is God for you? Yeah, I could ditto all over that. <laughs> God is God is presence. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's talk about your voice. I want to get back to your story. So what does opening your voice meant to you and how did you open your voice? Well, I was living in Los Angeles. Um, and at the time, I was part of a community of tantricas, ceremonialists, and artists who were really leading the cutting edge of consciousness. Like, I was so blessed to be in this, to continually be in a frontier of community like that. And I noticed women that were leaders were all starting to sing. And they were, like, really embarrassed and kind of shy about it, you know, because it's kind of awkward. It's very vulnerable and exposing. And these are, like, powerhouse women. So I was like, huh, what's going on? And at the time, I had a hiking company, so I brought a few of us out into nature and um, brought psilocybin mushrooms, and I just said, hey, you guys, this is the voice activation hike. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> no idea what that means. But we went into nature, of course, a safe space, and um, all, we all had uh, mushroom. And then each woman self-facilitated her own inner journey, but everybody in that experience found a piece of their voice. For me, the first piece that I found in the voice was um, a woman went into my Akashic field. She went into my field and she showed me a past life where I had been a famous harp player and singer. And it was funny because the harp had just started coming into my life at that time. And I was like, oh, the harp, that feels right. Harp is good. Yeah, yeah, all these strings. And and so the harp was coming into my life, and she's like, in a past life, you were a famous harp player and singer, and your life's greatest tragedy was you sold your voice. You sold your voice. 
And when she said that, my entire body just rung with truth bumps of like, oh my God, because at that moment in that life, in this life, I was healing having sold my voice by working for corporations where I had made tons of money for corporations by using the power of my voice to motivate and inspire and train people for something that actually wasn't a part of my dharma or my soul calling. So I was healing that timeline while healing this timeline. And then a couple of weeks later, I was in a sound bath with four women. Um, and the sound bath practitioner said, is in a private home. She said, if you feel called to sing along, sing. And my whole body was terrified. I was like, mm, I can't even breathe. <laughs> and I was like, I have to do this. You know, if something scares you that much, you must do it. And so I'm laying there. And once again, there was, there was mushrooms. There was psilocybin. Just a little bit. We had mushroom tea. And I'm laying on my back. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> she starts playing this beautiful crystal harp. And I open up my mouth to sing. The only person. Open up my mouth to sing. And when I do, this primordial voice, this primordial voice ripped through my entire body. And it guided me and the women in the room. So three of my past lives, we could all see them. The first life, I was a slave. And I used my voice to sing songs of liberation to remind all the slaves that nobody can truly own us. And in that life, I was strangled. When it moved up to the solar and the heart, the, the, the notes were rising. And that lifetime, I was a queen. And in that lifetime, I had an entire kingdom and I would speak these words of benevolence and freedom and truth and beauty for my kingdom to give them the sensation that I actually didn't have as a queen. I was a kept woman. I didn't have my own life, right? I was, I was a kept woman. And then in the last, the last part, it, go, it went all the way up. So at this point, it's then coming up to my third eye, my crown, and it's this high first opera soprano like uh, unearthly sounds right and I, I i didn't know like this is not me singing but it's coming through me and in that lifetime i was a wisdom keeper and what i what what we were shown was that as a wisdom keeper my my life had been to carry on the lineage of all of the creation's wisdom for my people but the person who I was meant to inherit this wisdom from died before I had been given the information. And it was like the life's greatest sorrow through all of my lives. It was the deepest sorrow of losing the entire knowledge of all of creation ever. And then in that life, I found in nature, not only the spirit of my teacher, but all of wisdom. And my entire reason for that lifetime was to actually teach all of my people that we are all wisdom keepers. We're all wisdom keepers. There's not one person that holds the truth. And so then all the energy just like came down and I'm back in my body and I'm just like laying there and we're all like laying there. And this energy and this visual experience that we had just all gone on a shared journey through song. We're just looking at each other and they they're honoring me and they're literally bowing to me and i'm like i don't know what this means like i don't know who i am i don't know like what's going on like 
this is not normal. This is, I have no idea what's going on. And uh, it blew me so open. I went through a complete, I thought I'd already gone through an identity crisis because I'd already left my old life, started my new life. And then this happened and it was this whole new identity crisis. And that was actually to bring in my grandmother again. Um, I was in Encinitas. And so I went to go visit her later that weekend. We're making empanadas together. We're making empanadas. And I'm just kind of like trying to get any information out of her. And I'm like, so uh, what about my great-grandfather? And this, she told me the story where um, my great-grandfather had come into what I could feel and understand, but she did not use these words, Christ consciousness awareness. And he began teaching this entire community that they lived in in Argentina. Um, fast forward years later, miraculous things happened on their property. This whole community built him a church and he became their pastor. And so all of a sudden I'm getting all this information about who my soul is and I'm having massive imposter syndrome. Like, who am I? I, I can't handle any of this information. And then I'm finding out that my great grandfather had a church built for him and he was also a channel and a conduit for for benevolence and words of strength and beauty and prayer of the same cause of liberation and so all of that came through and then i'm like okay so this is in my ancestry <laughs> i'm grounding it just a little bit and then i was in a sound bath with guy douglas the following weekend and i had this huge visual experience to go to india and i'd never been to india never even thought about going to india and um, within two months, I had a one-way ticket and my first vision quest ever to go to India. Yeah. And, and, and at that point, it's just pure faith. Like, my life has been pure faith for a lot of it, where I'm just like, okay, here we go. What are we doing now? I don't know. They'll just go with it. And so I went to India. I thought to study Tantra because that was a part of my life at that point. But I ended up being guided to study the ragas, the traditional temple singing in temples all across India. And that's when things started to make sense of like, okay, here's a lineage, here's, here's my voice, here's a song. There's something connected to this that is ancient, ancient wisdom and truth of the voice and the body that nobody's talking about. Voice activation was not a thing back then. Nobody's talking about the wisdom that is held in the body that you access through frequency and song, what you're unlocking in the being when you're singing. And um, that took me on a whole journey to then go into Tushita, to sit in Vipassana, to study Buddhism, to then find the Mahayana and give my path to the life of the Mahayana. And that night, I'll never forget it, it was late. I was in the cafeteria, late studying about Buddhism and the Mahayana. And I discovered what the Mahayana was, one who aims to achieve enlightenment, to free all sentient beings from the suffering of samsara. And when I found that, I went into this rapturous prayer. One of the, one of the first times in my life where I was really, really, truly in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. And I said, I'm giving you everything. I've given you everything. And I will continue to do so, but give me a sign. Show me I'm on the right path. I've given you my twin flame. I let go of that relationship. I've given you my whole life in Los Angeles. I've given you my entire community. I've given you my body. I've given you my voice. Like, what is going on? Like, sh give me a sign. And the next day, 
the headmaster of Toshida, this big German nun, hilarious woman, and, you're, and you're, it's a silent retreat, so you're not allowed to talk or laugh, and so everybody gets really uncomfortable because she's going to make you laugh and you can't laugh. And she comes in, and we're like, oh my God, don't laugh. And she comes in, and she's like, class, this is the first time in Toshida history, 45 years of Toshida history. Your class and your class alone has been invited to come meet the Dalai Lama in person. And people are screaming and crying, and the silent retreat is over. We're meeting the Dalai Lama, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I'll take that as my sign. (laughs) I'll take that as my sign. And since then, um, you know, I'm just constantly on the path. And when I got back to Los Angeles after India, I had two months, Spirit said, now you will teach people what you learned in India. And at first I was like, no way, this shit is so weird. Like, I can't teach people what I learned. This is so weird. But Spirit's like, you've done everything else. You will do this. (laughs) Not that weird. And so I started teaching people. And what I saw were people were having these cusps heartache breakthroughs past life remembrances like full de-armoring with complete strangers in los angeles a very guarded city just through singing just through singing and that's when i realized like we don't need to be taking all these plant medicines we don't need to be doing all these crazy extra worldly things we just need to be connecting to our inner child and to our joy and singing is a direct path to take us there um yeah, and, and now now I sing and I channel I channel water, I channel the earth, I sing for the earth, and I speak for the planet because the planet doesn't use words like humans, and that's how I use my voice today. Beautiful. It's interesting how you were saying that, and the sun just went out. <laughs> it's not all this. Yeah, there's somebody there uh, highlighting this. <laughs> how is it meeting Dalai Lama? Oh my God, I'm having a funny question. <laughs> the Dalai Lama. Well, it was beautiful. We had a procession. So we're supposed to be in science. And so we walked down the hills of Tushita and we're all dressed up. And I'm wearing my favorite green dress because I read that his favorite color is green and like so silly. And we get there and we're, we're in the Dalai Lama's home. We're in this big room. And just as he's giving the part of his speech, he's very simple. Very simple, just sitting in a regular chair in front of a room of people. And he's saying, We're all the same. We're all equal. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just a, a, a monk. Like, there's nothing special about me. And as he's saying this, his servers come and they start serving him tea and they're making this big fuss about tea. And then he gets super embarrassed and he's <laughs> like, Here I am saying we're all the same, but I have tea and you have no tea. And he's like, Get them something to drink. Get them something to drink. And before you know it, we're sitting in a room and everybody has these juice boxes. And you just hear crinkling, crinkling plastic straws and these juice boxes and people slurping juice boxes. And we're drinking processed artificial sugar that I guarantee like 70% of the people in the room would never touch this stuff. But it's from the Dalai Lama, so it's sanctified. And there's just slurping and plastic of juice boxes and the Dalai Lama talking about how we're all the same in the front. And it was very non-climatic, but he gave us a beautiful blessing. And um, there's a humor in that. There's a humor in like thinking that the Dalai Lama will wink and, you know, the world will melt and everything will be different and you'll see God. But it was 
the action of getting there that was a miracle, not the Dalai Lama. He's just a man, yeah. a man that's done a lot, but he is a man. And it's interesting how he doesn't take it seriously either. Other people take him more seriously than he does. He's such oh my a... God. You know, you know, actually, I, and I do want to say something um, recently. I don't know. Did you see this piece about uh, Dalai Lama telling a young boy to suck the tip of his tongue? No. Controversial. Um, there was there was a couple of weeks ago, it, it made huge news and it got everybody all worked up about child molestation and what's inappropriate. And um, they he was he was talking and there was a child and he said to the child, suck on the tip of my tongue. And he stuck his tongue out and the kid sucked on the tip of his tongue and it's super controversial and it's very interesting. But what I saw when I looked at that image and I'm just bringing it in because it feels important in this moment was actually that's like a really sacred thing to suck on the tip of somebody's tongue. And there's like a connection point here and um, just bringing that in. Yeah. 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 I don't watch news, so that's why I don't know. Me neither. This one made it in, though. <laughs> uh, the last part I want to talk about is water. Okay. I think what, I know that water means a lot to you. Can you describe your relation to water and why you're so fascinated right now? Such a big question. Again, water. Well, water. Uh, 60, 60 to 70% of our planet is covered in water. Our bodies mirror that being made of 60 to 70 percent. Our bodies are water. Water is this malleable fluid liquid that can be charged with frequency. And currently, when you think about the waters of our planet, the waters of our planet are being tuned by whale song. There are whales and dolphins singing and singing, and their song is literally holding the frequency of our planet through the singular membrane of water that wraps all around our planet. Meanwhile, there are lots of horrible things like sonar waves and pollution that are also toxifying our ocean, which is toxifying the planet. Um, and we see this mirrored in the human body when we drink water, when we bless water, we work with water, when we pray, like we can constantly be working with water. And recently, um, Zach Bush came into town recently, and I was so blessed to have a tea with him and was just listening to the codes that he's carrying around water. And he said something that just clicked on another level. And he's like, when we realize that water is the answer to everything, it will be the answer to everything. And And I just got this beautiful vision of, 30 days of prayer with water, 30 days of Reiki with water. And I had one of my um, one of my guides started talking to me and said, it's time for you to start praying to water every single day. Like how, like how often do you pray with water? I was like, I pray with water like once a week. And they're like, every day. And when you start to pray with water, just watch. The floodgates will open. The opportunities will be never ending. Like everything will come the second you start to talk to water. And in Bali, uh, Bali, is such, Bali is one of the last water-worshipping cultures that are still intact in the world. Um, Agrama Tirta is a worshipping of water, and that was the first religion here in the island of Bali. The worshipping of water, being in reverence to the sentience, to the intelligence of water. And 
We have water temples all around here. We also have the Subak system. The Subak system um, goes all the way from the mountaintops, and it is a um, very technical irrigation system that connects all of the rice fields. And the rice fields are our abundance. It's our prosperity. It's our health. It's our vitality. And all of these communities, the Banjars, have to work together in communication for when the water's passed to the next community. When do we drown the fields? When, when do we dry the fields? When can we harvest? And so the water is creating this natural system of symbiosis throughout the entire island, right? And, and it's, it's literally charging the land as the water passes through all, all of Bali. Um, to take this to Egypt, the pyramids, it's actually said that the Nile, the water from the Nile used to actually run through all of the pyramid buildings activating the technologies of the pyramids themselves like water is so powerful water is electricity water is energy water is movement like water is literally life and so for me one, one thing i'm really excited about is not only singing for the voice of the ocean and the voice of water like when i when i sing i'm feeling the sentience of water and i'm giving other people a firsthand experience to that as well, so they can feel more in relationship with something that they might think is inanimate, but also connecting it to actual projects. Um, here in Bali, there are so many incredible NGOs that are clearing plastic out of the waterways, that are preventing plastic from going into the ocean. And we have the opportunity to continue to look at how can we attune the frequency of water so that we can work with frequency rather than chemical additives and remove GMOs from these crops, from our bodies, from the land, from disrupting the soil, right? And there's, there's a lot. So as an artist, I'm constantly wanting to expand on people's imagination of like what's possible with the earth and with water, but also as a systems designer and a community designer and an environmentalist, I'm also looking tangibly at how can we, how can I take all these organizations that are working towards a shared goal and create an, an umbrella aggregation that helps them all work together with shared funding towards a singular focus of like, imagine if we made Bali plastic free. Imagine if we cleaned all of the waterways of Bali. Bali is an island as smaller than the state of Massachusetts. It's not impossible. And there are a lot of people that are working towards it. So it's just about refining how we're doing that and, and creating streams of communication so people can work together more efficiently. Beautiful, beautiful. The last question I have that I ask everybody here is how to live a happy and fulfilling life according to Marley. <laughs> Breathe. <laughs> Breathe and just don't take it so seriously. No, like. Like when I can remind myself like right now to just listen. It's like everything makes sense again because nothing makes sense ever. So it's just letting it go and letting it come back together and letting it go and letting it come back together. And at the end of the day, we will all die. So no matter how smart we get, how successful we get, how rich we get, love comes from inside of us, you know, and breathe. Beautiful. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom. This has been 
amazing. Thank you for really listening. Thank you for holding such a level of presence that it compels so much um, storytelling and depth. I, I really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. Thank you. For everybody listening, please share it to your friends. We want to wake up as many souls as possible, and you guys can help us out. Thank you for watching. Bye-bye.